This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grill, including the Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren, and this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. The number of issues covered in each episode varies based on story arcs. Today we're talking about a three-part John Sable adventure from issues 22 through 24, and we're covering a special crossover event between Green Arrow and the Warlord in Green Arrow issues 27 and 28. We'll also continue our coverage of The Legion of Superheroes by Mike Grell with issues 208 and 209. Our special guests joining us for that segment are Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast and Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, who is joining us all the way from Scotland. Also, coming up later in the episode, we will be announcing the winners of our recent Warlord Dreamcast contest. That should be fun for everyone. If you enjoy the podcast, check out MikeGrail.com. That's his official site. You'll find his convention schedule, photos, and news updates there. Mike recently shared a tribute to Batman star Adam West on his website, including a commission he did for the show's 50th anniversary last year. Mike also shared photos with cosplayer Bill Lonergan from the East Coast Comic Con, where he cosplayed as Green Arrow one day and as the Warlord another day. Both costumes were amazing, so check them out. Mike has several other convention appearances scheduled over the next few months, including Bloomington, Minnesota, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Plus, Mike will be a special guest at San Diego Comic Con in July to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Longbow Hunters. And speaking of convention appearances, we have two friends who were recently able to see Mike at conventions. Jerry Green of the podcast Bat Books for Beginners saw Mike at BurrowCon in New York, and Paul Hicks of the Doom Patrol podcast Waiting for Doom saw Mike in Australia at Sydney Supernova. We'll have details from both cons in our feedback section. As always, pre-orders for convention sketches may be placed through Scott Cress at CatskillComics.com. And if you can't make it to a convention but want to get an original drawing, then Scott Cress can help you with that too. Just make your request at CatskillComics.com. And we also recommend the Mike Grell page on Facebook. The site features lots of great news and images and is expertly run by Gus Ceballos. Mike Grell's variant covers for the current series continue. Recent covers include a gorgeous black and white drawing of the Green Arrow and Black Canary on issue 22. I hope to buy a print of that one the next time we see Mike. An image of Green Arrow, Speedy, and Emiko with a dramatic lightning-filled sky behind them is on issue 23. Green Arrow grasped in the hands of the leader of the Ninth Circle is on issue 24. And Green Arrow behind bars and gel is on issue 25. We hope everyone is collecting these variant covers to show DC that we all love Mike Grell working on Green Arrow. We enjoy sharing listener feedback, so please feel free to write us anytime and join in on the conversations. You know we'd love to hear your thoughts about any of Mike Grell's titles over the course of his career. I'm always interested in hearing what others think about Mike Grell's stories and his art. It's great to find out about everyone's favorite titles and to hear stories about collections and seeing Mike Grell at conventions, so send your comments our way. 
We'll provide our email address and other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. Warlord Worlds is part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. If you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts that are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. Mike Grell, Mark Schultz, and Ron Randall are our favorite comic creators. Their stories are always filled with adventure and interesting characters, and their art is excellent. We hope you'll try out our other shows, and we'll be sure to include links to those podcasts in our show notes. Green Arrow, number 27, December 1989. Enter the Lost World of Green Arrow, part one. Writer Mike Grell. Pencils Dan Jurgens. Inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters John Costanza. Colors Julia Laquament. Assistant editor Katie Main. Editor Mike Gold. Our story opens in a seedy-looking bar at night at the docks in Seattle. A shadowed man with a beard is sitting at the bar. He's wearing a long green coat and has a pack on his back that looks like it could hold a bow and some arrows. He looks very familiar. And one of the other patrons in the bar thinks he looks familiar as well. He has a mohawk and raises his voice as he approaches the shadowed man, holding out an injured hand and telling him he spent 18 months in jail because of that Robin Hood routine. The punk pulls out a knife and rushes the shadowed man, who spins, grabbing his arm and taking the knife. He puts the punk's injured hand on the bar and skewers it with the knife, pinning him to the bar, before turning and walking away. In another part of town, Green Arrow is walking through the rain. He's injured and leaves a smear of blood on an alley wall. After arriving at home, Dinah bandages him and chastises him, telling him he needs to learn to duck. The two go downstairs for a workout, with Dinah repeatedly throwing Oliver to the ground and pinning him to the mat. But it seems to be more of a flirtatious game rather than training. Meanwhile, out in the rain, our shadowed figure has encountered a gang who seems to recognize him, just like the punk from the bar. One swings a baseball bat at the shadowed figure, when suddenly a sword is retrieved from the pack on his back, and the sharp sword easily slices the bat in half. The gang members quickly run off into the dark night. Later, our shadowed figure is walking across a bridge when a passing Rolls Royce screeches to a halt and four men step out of the car. A man named Eddie is obviously in charge and he says, It's my lucky night. Eddie is holding a bloody green arrow that he retrieved from the dead body of his brother-in-law earlier that evening. Sure, he was a worm, but he was family and now it's time to pay. Eddie tosses the arrow to the shadowed figure as the other three men surround him and their boss tells them to make sure he lands with a splat. Guns come out and they tell the shadowed figure to jump off the bridge. In a sudden burst of speed, the shadowed figure kicks and spins, disarming all three men quickly. As fists fly, Eddie tries to drive away, but the shadowed figure pulls out his very own distinctive gun and fires three shots, bringing Eddie's car to a stop. The shadowed figure walks up to Eddie and tells him they're going to have a little chat. Back at Sherwood Florist, Oliver and Dinah are woken in the middle of the night by a constant pounding knock at the door. Oliver goes downstairs and opens the front door. In surprise, Oliver says, You look just like me. The shadowed figure steps into view and we see it is the warlord, Travis Morgan, who says, So I hear, and half the population of Seattle wants you dead. Whatever you've been doing, cut it out. And Travis Morgan swings his fist and knocks Oliver to the floor as the issue ends. 
The cover is a gorgeous nighttime scene. Green Arrow is in an alley examining a sword on the ground. A full moon is in the background behind him, framing the silhouette of a man wearing a very distinctive helmet. For readers familiar with the Warlord, there is no mistaking that silhouette as anyone other than Travis Morgan. And it's absolutely awesome to have the Warlord and Green Arrow in a story together. It's geek heaven for Mike Grell fans like us. Of course, the title on the cover page is an homage to the title page of most every issue of The Warlord, which featured the banner, Enter the Lost World of the Warlord. Getting down to the specifics of this issue, I'll just say that the artwork and story do a good job of handling the mystery of the shadowed figure. It looks just like Oliver in the shadows, but at the same time the reader knows from the beginning that it isn't Oliver, since he is shown in different locations at the same points in time. I love the banter between Oliver and Dinah when he returns injured. Mike Grell really captures a believable home-life relationship between these two. And I really like that the training illustrates exactly what Mike Grell said to us in a recent interview, which is that he believes that Dinah can always beat Oliver in a hand-to-hand -hand fight. Part of me would have loved to see Mike Grell draw these two issues featuring two of his iconic characters, but the art from Masters Dan Jurgens, Dick Giordano, and Frank McLaughlin is fantastic. The use of shadows, the many varied locations, and the character interactions are all terrific. Some favorite images include a rain-drenched Oliver with the Seattle Space Needle in the background, the panel of the shadowed Travis Morgan walking across the bridge in the rain, and the image of Morgan on the bridge firing his pistol so rapidly that you can see all three muzzle blasts simultaneously. Green Arrow 28, January 1990, Part 2, Siege. Writer, Mike Grell. Pencils, Dan Jurgens. Inks, Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Lackament. Assistant Editor, Katie Main. Editor, Mike Gold. This issue opens in an opulent office in a tall building. A very angry Eddie is ranting about his dead brother-in-law, but he's actually more upset about his Rolls Royce being shot up. He has a plan and calls in several favors. He needs a big distraction to keep the police away from Broadway, where Sherwood Florist is located, so his people can take care of the Green Arrow. Back at Sherwood Florist, a dazed Oliver is slowly getting to his feet when Dinah marches into the room, demanding to know what's going on. The unexpected house guest has the nerve to try to dismiss her by calling her Little Lady, and she swings her fist, knocking Travis Morgan to the floor, which brings a big smile to Oliver's face. Morgan is quick to apologize and tries to explain his frustration at being mistaken for Oliver Queen ever since arriving in Seattle and all of the confrontations he's had to endure. Dinah does admit that the two look like twins, but neither Oliver nor Morgan appreciate the comparison. Greetings are exchanged, and the trio sit down to coffee, and Oliver and Dinah hear the strange tale of Travis Morgan, an Air Force pilot who crashed in a strange world called Scataris, where it's always daylight, so that you lose track of time. Morgan has returned to the surface world to see what's changed in the 20 years he's been in Scataris, but neither Oliver nor Dinah can believe he's as old as he says. Time obviously works differently at the center of the Earth. During his travels on the surface, Morgan has found that some things are better and some things are worse, but he has definitely enjoyed seeing the night sky again. But it's time to go home, and he's on his return trek to Scataris. In another part of the city, a guard is knocked unconscious at Pacific Gas and Electricity, and a bomb is being planted in the building. A moment later, a large explosion knocks out the lights throughout Seattle. Police and fire crews are quickly overwhelmed by a large number of incidents spread around the city, but everything seems quiet near Broadway. 
Talking by candlelight at Sherwood Florist, our trio overhears faint noises outside, and looking through the window, see armed men in the shadows. Climbing up into the tower, the battle begins. Oliver fires arrows in quick succession from one window, while Morgan and his gun take care of a different direction from another window. Those gang members who manage to get inside find they are no match for Dinah, who takes out each one with ease. Oliver and Morgan make every shot count, but unfortunately ammunition is in short supply, and soon there are no more arrows or bullets. The few remaining attackers begin to move forward, but then Morgan pulls out his sword and leaps to the ground, quickly taking out three men. The remaining men run off into the night, and Eddie runs to his car and starts to drive away, but Morgan leaps toward him and slices through the windshield into the car, and a spray of blood makes it clear that Eddie is dead. Morgan doesn't want to be there to answer any questions when the police arrive, so it's time for him to move on. But before he leaves, he needs to ask one question. Did Gilligan ever get off that island? The cover features an image of Oliver Queen and Travis Morgan standing back-to-back in profile. Oliver holding a bow in one hand and an arrow in the other, while Morgan holds his gun in one hand and a sword in the other. Black Canary stands in the center in the foreground, poised for action. The two-part story is a pure delight, especially for any Mike Grell fan. I can remember reading it when it was originally released and loving it, and I enjoyed it even more reading it concurrently with the Warlord series. Readers who are unfamiliar with the Warlord might be just a little lost because the story doesn't take time to tell Travis Morgan's full background. Instead, everything is handled with more of a nod and a wink to readers who would have been very familiar with the Warlord at the time, since the series just ended about a year before these two issues were published. However, there is enough background information that any reader can easily enjoy the story, learning just as much about Morgan as Oliver and Dinah do. I absolutely love that Dinah didn't hesitate and knocked Morgan to the floor when he tried to dismiss her as a little lady, showing that she can beat both Oliver and Morgan in a hand-to-hand fight. Some favorite art includes the close-up of Morgan staring out the window while he's telling his story, the scenes of Morgan near the fireplace bathed in red and yellow light from the fire, and the scene of our trio on the balcony at Sherwood Florist looking at the city shrouded in darkness. This is an action-packed two-part story with great characters and great art, and I loved it. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fan Holes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fan Holes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanhole soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. John Sable, number 22. March 1985, The Contract, Part 1. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusenak. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. (laughs) The issue picks up with John Sable and Mike Blackman on their date from the end of the previous issue. They are taking a horse-drawn carriage ride, and the horse is Widowmaker, also from the previous issue. 
The horse was going to be put down, but John bribed the vet and gave the horse to a friend who offers carriage rides in the city. John is surprised to learn that it is coincidentally Mike's birthday, and the date goes very well and lasts into the night. But later at home, Mike thinks about John Sable, and whether it is smart for her to get involved with him. The next morning, Sonny Pratt wakes John early. He is still a long way from fully recovered, and Sonny is going to put him on a training routine. When John lights a cigarette, Sonny slices it in half with a sword, telling him it's time to quit. The growing relationship with Mike gives John renewed interest in writing. In addition to making progress on his latest children's book, he also writes an article for an Outdoor Life magazine and asks Mike to do some illustrations to accompany it. Editor Eden Kendall is very happy that John is writing again, and while she feels a little jealous of the relationship between John and Mike, she knows her relationship with him was never more than physical. She prefers to avoid getting too close to someone like John Sable. Meanwhile, in another part of the world, a passenger jet lands on a seemingly abandoned runway in the desert. A handful of armed figures exit the plane, and then the plane explodes. Back in New York, Mike is helping John work on his 1953 Studebaker, which she points out is older than she is. And when they're finished with the maintenance, they take a drive into the mountains, stopping by a waterfall for a picnic. Suddenly, a man in a suit appears and asks to talk to Sable in private. It's obviously a government agent, and he tells John about a skyjacked plane. The terrorists were led by a woman named Falana, working for the Libyan leader Qaddafi. They landed in Angola and issued their demands, killing multiple hostages until getting what they wanted. Then they flew away, but the plane vanished from radar. The plane was later found in the Israeli-occupied Sinai Desert. Even though they got what they wanted, the terrorists still killed all the hostages. Sable wants to know why they're talking to him, and he learns the payment the terrorists received was the release of Sparrow, who is the KGB killer we met back in the adventure with Russian dancers Mishka and Anastasia Yurkovich. They want Sable to get Sparrow, dead or alive. Sable says no, and returns home and tries to work on the last chapter of his latest book, but he can't concentrate. He has more money than he could ever need, and a promising new relationship with Mike, but he has to take the job. Is he addicted to the danger, or is he just a cold-blooded killer? He isn't sure himself. The cover features a close-up of John Sable against a red background. He is holding his pistol. Shadows create part of his battle mask on one side of his face, suggesting the dual personality that is the focus of the issue. I loved seeing the issue start by showing Widowmaker, now in a much different situation and with a much more caring owner. This sequence really shows that John Sable has a soft and caring side. And the image of Widowmaker with the carriage and a shadowed city in the background makes for a great opening panel. I particularly like the way this issue devotes pages to some serious introspection from different characters. Mike Blackman, Eden Kendall, and John Sable all have entire pages dedicated to their innermost thoughts. Those pages also offer beautiful montages of images for each of our main characters. The page of John Sable happily typing away and working on his latest book is delightful. He smiles more in the panels on that one page than in perhaps every other issue combined. But of course, you know it can't last. And near the end of the issue, we get a mirror image of that page showing his frustration as he tries unsuccessfully to write with a sad frown on his face. 
The issue is heavy on character development and features many close-up images of the characters to help illustrate that point. I love that the many close-ups give Mike Grell a chance to show off his excellent pencil work. It makes for a beautiful issue. John Sable, Issue 23, April 1985. The Contract, Part 2, The Crucified Man. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusnack. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. A passenger jet lands at the airport in Tel Aviv, Israel. Inside the terminal, a dark-haired woman scans the crowd. She is holding a photo of John Sable and is carefully watching every passenger disembark. But she pays no attention to the fair-haired B.B. Flynn, who walks by her and looks over her shoulder at the photo she is holding. Inside the restroom, B.B. Flynn transforms into John Sable, who follows the dark-haired woman to a taxi. But from inside her taxi, she watches John Sable get into another taxi and she smiles when she sees he is following her. Exiting their taxis, the two continue their game of cat and mouse in the streets of the city, but when the woman turns down an alley and sees John Sable's luggage on the ground, she pulls out a gun and proceeds slowly. From above, John Sable drops down from a fire escape, snatching her gun, and the two finally have a conversation. She provides her ID. She's Rachel Elazar from Israeli Intelligence. She's his contact. She takes Sable to his hotel, and later that night a man makes a delivery to Sable's room. It's the weapons he's been waiting for, including a sniper's rifle. Sable plans to take out Sparrow from as far away as possible. Sable hears a rustling noise in the hallway outside of his room and puts his ear to the door. Someone has left a ticking time bomb hanging on the door handle. Sable grabs the rifle and leaps from the balcony just as the bomb explodes. Luckily for him, the hotel swimming pool is below his room, and he lands with a splash. The next morning, he meets Rachel and is surprised to see they will be traveling on a bus filled with passengers. Hardly what he expected, but Rachel tells him it will be less conspicuous. While driving through the desert, a group of robed horsemen fire a grenade launcher at the bus, blowing up the engine. As he and Rachel leap from the back of the damaged bus, Sable realizes the other passengers are all trained agents. Each has a weapon in hand and is firing out of the bus windows at the horsemen racing in their direction, but moments later a second grenade destroys the bus and kills the agents. Sable grabs a horse and sword from one of the downed raiders and races after one of the other escaping horsemen, but just as he catches up, he is surprised to see the raider turn from his horse and aim a gun at him. But Sable is lucky again because Rachel has his sniper's rifle and shoots the raider's horse, which throws him to the ground. Sable grabs the man and demands to know who sent them, and the raider replies, The crucified man. But then the man is shot in the heart. Sable turns and looks into the distance. The robed figure who had been firing the grenade launcher now holds a rifle. It's a woman, and Sable knows it must be Falana, who turns her horse and races into the desert. Sable and Rachel spend the night by an oasis in the desert, and Rachel asks what the raider meant by the crucified man. Sable explains that the sparrow has scars on both of his hands from an earlier encounter between the two of them. Sable won't need to find Sparrow because the sparrow is already looking for him. The cover features an image of John Sable in the crosshairs of a rifle. In the background is an image of the sparrow with his open hands showing the scars from the earlier encounter between him and Sable. 
I love the little touch of Sable traveling as B.B. Flim to avoid being recognized, and the cat-and-mouse game between him and the Israeli agent was good fun, with each of them stalking the other in turn. Mike Grell's pencil work creates beautiful shadow effects, and we get to see lots of them in this issue as Sable and Rachel dodge each other on the streets, and especially in the night scenes at the hotel and later at the Oasis. Those are some really gorgeous pages. The double-page title page is very dramatic and features the explosion at Sable's hotel. The image is stunning, and you can really feel the movement as Sable barely escapes the explosion. The pages in the desert are action-packed with a great variety of perspectives and, again, illustrate Mike Grell's ability to dramatically capture action and his amazing ability to draw horses. John Sable, number 24, May 1985, The Contract, Part 3. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusenak. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. Preparing to return to the city the next morning, Rachel notices a medallion that Sable took from the raider he questioned the previous day, and she shows Sable it's the same as one she took from the hotel bombers the night before. Both medallions feature the numbers 666, and John and Rachel begin to suspect what the sparrow is planning. Texts say the Antichrist will stand in the Temple of Solomon, but the temple was destroyed nearly 2,000 years ago. Only the Wailing Wall remains of the old temple, and a mosque known as the Dome of the Rock now stands on the site. Sable thinks the Sparrow plans to manipulate a volunteer into destroying the mosque, probably with a truck bomb, to destabilize the area, and then use the opportunity to move in military forces to take the oil fields. With Falana being one of Qaddafi's top agents, Sable suspects Libya is involved, and he and Rachel each begin to reach out to contacts who can put them in touch with arms dealers. Sable connects with Volmar, who he learns has a large consignment of explosives for the crucified man. Walking through the city at night, Sable is attacked by two men. He easily disarms both of them, but then turns to find a third man aiming a pistol at him. But a moment later, the man is dead, shot from the shadows by Rachel, who also heard about the shipment from Volmar. Rachel also learned the explosives came in on a ship called the Lucinda, and Sable suspects the Sparrow will use that ship for his escape. At the docks, Sable watches through the upper window of a building and sees Falana and several men with a truck that has a large cargo covered in a tarp. Sable crashes through the window, firing his gun and killing each of the men. Dropping to the ground, he aims his pistol at Falana. Sable demands to know where the Sparrow is but Falana tells him that he is already gone. He saw this was all a setup long before Sable did, which causes Sable to demand to know what she means. She tells Sable that he was not the one sent to kill the sparrow. He was only the bait that was intended to draw the sparrow into the open so that someone else could kill him. Just then, Rachel steps into the room. She's been hiding in the shadows. What Falana says is true. Rachel was the one who was supposed to kill the sparrow, but he figured out the plan, and now he's escaped. Taking advantage of the distraction, Falana rushes Sable. In the commotion, his gun fires, shooting Rachel in the shoulder. Sable rushes to ensure that Rachel is okay, and Falana takes advantage of the opportunity to jump into a jeep and drive away. Rachel tells Sable that she's fine and to chase after Falana. As Sable runs from the building, firing his pistol at the departing jeep, Falana pushes a button on a remote, detonating the explosives in the truck and destroying the building. Sable is thrown clear, but he turns toward the burning building, knowing that Rachel couldn't have survived. Later, aboard the departing ship the Lucinda, the
the sparrow and falana laugh and smile, not realizing that a sniper rifle has them in its crosshairs. Two shots ring out. John Sable in his battle mask turns to walk away and says, Bang, bang, you're dead. The cover features an image of the Jewish Star of David with images from the issue in each of the six points of the star and an image of John Sable at the center of the star. The story features several twists and turns as it races to a dramatic conclusion. As in some previous stories, I particularly like the way Mike Grell weaves real-life events and history into this story as he ties the adventure to important historical events from the previous 2,000 years as well as contemporary confrontations in Libya with Qaddafi. It is great that he can weave all those components into such an engaging comic. The art is amazing again from the very first page with John and Rachel still at the oasis at night. The expressions on their faces and the use of shadows and light immediately draws you into the story. Rachel saves Sable yet again in this issue when he is attacked in the alley. I love that Mike Grell consistently portrays female characters as strong, capable, and independent. And the climax of the story is a shocker as Mike makes us see Rachel getting shot only to immediately relieve the tension by reassuring us she's going to be fine, and then he shocks us again when the entire building explodes, killing her just a page later. The image of John Sable being thrown to the ground from the explosion is even more dynamic than the image when the bomb exploded in his hotel room earlier in the story. And the story ends with a bittersweet feeling of sadness and consolation, because, while Sable takes care of both the Sparrow and Falana in the end, it still doesn't bring back Rachel. Hi, this is Batman. Whenever I lose my memory, I head over to the batmanuniverse.net and check out the podcast, Bat Books for Beginners. The Bat Books for Beginners podcast breaks down and analyzes all of my adventures so I can remember how to get to the Batcave, which Robin I'm working with, and where I parked the Batmobile. Chris and Jerry, the hosts of Bat Books for Beginners, are honest about how well I'm serving the citizens of Gotham Sometimes, too honest, I'll have to talk to them about that. If you wake up one morning and think you might be Batman and have just lost your memories, go over to the BatmanUniverse.net or iTunes and check out Bat Books for Beginners. Now, if I could just figure out who this old man cleaning the Batcave is, that would be great. I asked my friend Scott Snyder and he didn't know. Don't be a supervillain. Visit the BatmanUniverse.net and listen to Bat Books for Beginners, also on iTunes. You'll be glad you did. Bat Books for Beginners is part of the BatmanUniverse.net Bat family of podcasts. Don't listen to Bat Books for Beginners when operating heavy machinery or juggling. If you listen to Bat Books for Beginners for more than four hours, call your doctor. Bat Books for Beginners is part of a balanced diet. All three of these issues of John Sable have a backup feature in which Mike Grell details the events of a safari that he took to Zimbabwe in Africa. This safari sketchbook features a detailed write-up of his travels, as well as drawings of people he met along the way, including his guide and tracker. The sketchbook also includes gorgeous images of many of the animals and lots of the scenery he saw on the trip, including impalas, warthogs, lions, and our main character's namesake, the giant horned sable antelope. It's amazing the way Mike Grell is able to capture animals in motion. There are some truly beautiful images in the sketchbook. He has been challenged to read all the comics he has collected. This podcast will summarize, review, and reminisce about a single comic book issue and the time period somewhat chronologically by release date. He keeps a stack of comics near his bedside for when the time is right. Who is this interesting comic fan and what is the podcast? 
Hello, my name is Pat. I don't normally do podcasts about the comic books I read, but when I do, I podcast about them on The Longbox Crusade. Listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or on theLongboxCrusade.com, and check out the Facebook page. Read them all, my friends. Next up is our coverage of Mike Grell's run on the Legion of Superheroes. Mike started his career at DC Comics with a brief run on Aquaman, followed by a long run on the Legion, where his excellent artwork quickly won over fans, and he remained the artist on the book from issues 202 through 224, and he continued to do covers for quite a while after that. Knowing there are many knowledgeable Legion fans, we invited guests onto the show to discuss these stories, and we're very excited to have these experts covering these fun stories. Joining us today are Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl and Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast. It's great to have our friend Jeff back on the show, and we give a big welcome to our friend Martin, who we're very happy to have on the show. Also, if you're a Legion fan or just interested in learning more about the team, then we encourage you to visit the Legion of Superbloggers. Their extensive site features news, reviews, and discussions from a great group of dedicated fans. We highly recommend the group, and we'll provide links to their site in our show notes. And we send out a big thank you to Russell Burbage from the group, who has been very supportive of our coverage. First up is Martin Gray discussing Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 208 from April 1975, Vengeance of the Supervillains, written by Kerry Bates with art by Mike Grell and letters by Ben Oda. Hi there, I'm Martin Gray, such a lifelong fan of the Legion that my comic review blog, Too Dangerous for a Girl, is named after something Brainiac 5 once said to Saturn Girl, proving that male shamanism was still around in the Silver Age 30th century. Needless to say, the telepathic and very strident Imra Ardeen proved him wrong. I'm here with a few thoughts, comments and, well, probably ramblings on Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 208. This being a giant issue, DC wanted to showcase all the stories therein, so the cover is a montage of three images, one Legion reprint, one warmed-over Superboy tale, and the main event, a new story of Superboy and the Legion. The Mike Grell image has Manel and Superboy trapped in a bubble made by a gun being shot by Pa Kent as Mark Kent cheers him on. Both are grinning satanically. At this point, it's a few years since the Kents were permanently de-aged by an alien serum, but it was still alarming to see them as not just young, but Mike Grell sexy. Superboy cries, Mom, Dad, why are you imprisoning Manel and me? It was also odd to hear Clark refer to his parents as anything other than Ma and Pa, but it's the same throughout the issue. DC in the early 70s must have decided that the terms Ma and Pa were simply too old-fashioned. Darn you, DC. I like that Monell has come back from the 30th century to vacation with the Kents. It seems right for someone who, when he was introduced, was mistakenly believed to be Superboy's big brother. I'm surprised, though, that he and Clark are flying down to breakfast in their costumes. Have some discretion, boys. Snoopy Lana Lang lives next door, and if she isn't hiding under the crawl space, she's peeping through the window. I really like Mike's scene-setting spacescape of the planet Rimbo, which is followed by a very healthy-looking Ultra Boy as he relaxes on a visit to his parents. And that panel of Ultra Boy's father, Crab, flipping veggie steak is cute. You can see where Ultra Boy gets his cocky personality from. As we move to Earth and the Legion members who aren't on vacation are being filmed having a trophy delivered, we see a ridiculously sexy satin girl fixing her hair, slash, posing for the cameras. That costume wasn't designed by Mike or by previous artist the great Dave Cockrum, but by reader Kim Metzger. It's very skimpy pink bikini and it pretty much began the trend for Legionnaires to bear more flesh than their personalities would warrant. Wait until we get to Cosmic Boy's Rocky Horror outfit, blimey O'Reilly. 
When Pa Kent, sorry, Dad Kent, surprises Clark and Manella with his gun, Mike does a terrific job of selling their shock via big eyes, gaping mouths and sunburst effects. The brief fight between Clark and Manel, with the brutal bashing of Superboy's face into the Kent basement floor, is more realistic than we were used to back then, with the effort to best one another pretty much palpable. The panel introducing Sun Emperor made me smile, what with Harry Bates's script claiming he bears a striking resemblance to Sunboy. He really doesn't carry. He looks like Timberwolf's twin. The shot of the other secret villain sharply shows that this ain't no legion, with them slouching, crouching, or, in Lightning Lord's case, looking to be rocking nervously, and then Mike skillfully shows the worry-crossing temporary Legion leader Sunboy's face with moody shading. It's really good work. On the day of the big ceremony, there's a very cute pink futuristic bird in the foreground, no, not Imra, of the scene-setting panel. I doubt that's a detail Carrie Bates asked for, so well done Mike for bringing something a little extra. There's a panel on page 16 of the story that sees three of the supervillains narrating their plot to blow up the Legion, their heads framing the central TV screen showing the ceremony. There's a lovely evil leer on Spider-Girl's face that's reminiscent of work by the great Steve Ditko. It's terrific to finally see a big fight between the LSH and LSV after a plot that pretty much wastes the very concept of an evil legion. Who wants to see a battery of baddies who can take on the good guys one for one running an espionage operation? And the splash reveal of the legion's arrival at Villain HQ is a very dynamic composition by Mike. Carrie Bates tries at least three times in this story to make the super clunky non-word villainaires happen. Villainaires! Hmm... I don't believe anyone tried after him. Bates fails to even attempt to explain how the gadget that mind-controlled Pa Kent builds prevents Superboy Manel properly negotiating the time stream. He likewise doesn't bother to include one of the original Legion of Supervillains, Saturn Queen, in the story, when her powers of superhypnotism are most likely what got the Superboy and Ultraboy parents under the villain's control. It's interesting accidental foreshadowing that in the big fight it's Princess Projectra who defeats Nemesis Kid, as long after Grell left the Legion strip, she personally executed him in battle. All in all, this is a decent yarn, better than most of the tales of the time, which tended to feature the Legion in tiny groupings. Well, that's all, folks. Thanks to Ruth and Darren for having me across, and long live the Legion! Hello, Warlord Warriors. This is Jeff Messer checking in once more, thanks to Darren and Ruth, to talk about the great works of Mike Grell and talking about some of his earlier works as an artist at DC Comics with Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes way back in the 1970s. This time around, we're going to be talking about issue number 209 with a cover date of June 1975. I would have been four years old when this book came out. Now, I got this one many, many years later. And uh, I have to say, this was one of those early favorites. And going back and revisiting it, uh, still a fun, fun read. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, 209. On the cover, we find Karate Kid in a very cool new costume. This is the debut of the Karate Kid costume that people are more accustomed to. And it shows on the cover Superboy crashing through the wall of the medical laboratory yelling, Karate Kid, stop! And Karate Kid is standing over a, uh, a table where Princess Projectra is lying unconscious. These two giant sort of orbs on the tops of uh, posts that he's got his hands on. And there's all this energy bursting around him as he's absorbing some sort of powerful energy. And Karate Kid is in great pain. He says, I can't. I've got to, I've got to die to save her life. And uh, over on the other side there, the title, Who Will Save the Princess? The big question. 
All right, and much like the custom back in the day, there are two stories in this book. That is the lead story, a story that we uh, we get right into. The year is 2074, and we see uh, right there on the first page. This time, instead of the first page being kind of a little encapsulation of what we get in the full story, this the story just goes ahead and starts. It's written by Jim Shooter and drawn by Mike Grell. This is the return of Jim Shooter to the Legion of Superheroes after a period away. And of course, uh, Karate Kid and Prince Projector are characters that he created back in the day. So uh, no surprise that they are in the very first book that he returns to. But here we are, 2074. Timberwolf is on the spaceport deck of the Legion headquarters. He sees a cruiser coming in. Princess Projector's space buggy, as he calls it. She's cleared for landing, but something is wrong. She's coming in too steep and fast. So he takes note. Luckily, there is a large section of cable lying on the ground over there. It looks like rope, but I'm assuming it's cable. And uh, Timberwolf very quickly gets his rodeo on and, and turns it into a lasso. And he lassos the space buggies is coming to the ground and helps it to land safely. Karate Kid comes out of a, a portal there, porthole, uh, and is wondering what's going on. This is wild. And Timberwolf says the very sexist thing. I guess even a princess is still a woman driver. Oh boy, 1975, uh, not 2075. Although 2074 is what they say this story uh, when they say it takes place. They find out that Princess Projectra is, uh, she's ill, she's injured. She comes out of the ship and passes out, and Karate Kid and Timberwolf fly her very quickly to the laboratory. Saturn Girl is there, sporting her hot pink uh, intergalactic bikini look. She was my first crush when I was a kid. This look was uh, hubba hubba, you know. Anyway, Brainiac 5 is on the monitor there. Uh, he's not there in the lab, so he's going to uh, teleconference his opinion of what's going on. Flash forward, he tells them it's bad news. It wasn't the crash. She has the pain plague. This is one of those things that really drove me crazy. Uh, every every few issues, some legionnaire was down with some brain disease, some sort of plague, some sort of virus. That was a trope that they went to way too often, and it's a shame to see that Jim Shooter was doing this right away once again. But Brainy tells them that the uh, the symptoms, the fever, the pain, it causes severe pain to the point that it will kill a person only lasts for six hours but no one has ever survived this that's so horrible and he says it can't be stopped but there is one chance he sends timberwolf to get the universal adapter circuits from the lab and emra to get the uh, what they call the encephalo transceiver these great little sci-fi star tricky words here and they basically rig this thing up so that each of them in turn can absorb some of the pain to make the pain diminish in projector so that it won't actually kill her. And so uh, they're the only three Legionnaires who are there at the moment. Superboy is with Brainiac 5, and if he flies as fast as he can, he should be able to make it there in about five hours. So the clock is ticking. These three Legionnaires uh, hook up this gear. Timberwolf goes first. He absorbs some of her pain, but it uh, drives him to the point of rage. Very Wolverine-esque, uh, shall I say. Uh, and he starts ripping the equipment apart. And he's going crazy. Karate Kid jumps in to try and stop him. Crazed with pain. So Timberwolf is slugging Karate Kid. And the fight's going on. He rips Karate Kid's uniform. But finally, Saturn Girl uses her uh, telepathy to calm him down so that Karate Kid can subdue him. And they lock him away in a cell so that he can't do anyone any harm as, as Timberwolf is dealing with the pain. Karate Kid, meanwhile, ripped up uniforms. He has to get a brand new one. 
and he puts on the one that we all recognize, the black leotard with the white karate cloak and the big yellow collar. And the Saturn girl decide that to continue this process, each of them will have to absorb some of her pain. Saturn girl is concerned about her powers, though, because read people's minds and to put thoughts in their heads and so forth. She says, uh, I might over, overcome your will and make you a super zombie to act out my anguish, and it could cause you to kill and destroy or, in my ultimate madness, I might order you to kill me to end the pain. So, uh, Saturn Girl, it's problematic with her. So what they have to do is they have to put the dampeners on. Weird little helmet restraints. Very S&M looking stuff here. So uh, Karate Kid suits her up and she goes in and she takes her turn absorbing the pain. Which we don't see. It all happens off panel. I don't know if that was something to do with maybe the comics code or something like that. That they did not want to show her actually going through the process as they did Timberwolf. Then Karate Kid carries her to a couch in sick bay, so she, she's okay with it. And Superboy is out in deep space. He's flying, he's flying, he's watching from far away with his telescopic vision. Then Karate Kid, it's his turn. He goes up, he absorbs the power, the pain through the uh, this, this power portal. And finally Superboy arrives, crashing through the door as we saw on the cover. And Karate Kid is sitting there in lotus position, very zen-like, trying to deal with his pain. Uh, but he's struggling through it, and then Superboy uh, realizes, oh my gosh, there's not much time left, so I, I've got to do it, I've got to do it. He runs, and he puts his hands on the orbs, but then, oh my gosh, we discover that Superboy, because he is invulnerable, it won't let him absorb the pain. And he just, uh, he's concerned. He's like, oh, she'll die in 30 seconds, she'll start suffering again, and I, I, I can't take it from her. Who else could survive? And he says, there's one chance. I'll check the equipment in the experimental lab. Something there might save her. So he flies back out super fast. But as he does, Karate Kid rises to his feet, crawls uh, part of the way over there, and decides that the, the woman he loves, the girl he loves, is more important. So he is going to take a second round of pain. will kill him, but save her. And right as he is reaching for it, tears in his eyes, a hand comes down and punches him from behind. And we see a, a sort of just a partial form of a girl standing next to the table. She puts her hands on it. Uh, the pain floods into her. We sort of see her a little bit, little bit better, but we don't get a full look at her until suddenly she splits into two. It is Duo Damsel, who has now been a reserve legionnaire since she got married to Bouncing Boy. And she splits into two so that she can divide the pain, except that she starts fighting with herself. Superboy arrives back in time to split them up, and then finally the whole ordeal is over, and we've got like two panels to wrap it up. Duo Damsel explains why she's there. We see uh, Princess Projector waking up and Karate Kid being all happy. The end. All right, so that's the first story in, in the book here. It's a fun, I mean, it's a fun little story. Again, I, I keep saying this on these podcasts, it goes in that format of like the Saturday morning cartoons, the really short morality tale type stuff. Uh, some great panels here. I mean, right out of the gate, that first panel of Timberwolf with the, the rope, with the cable lassoing and bringing down the uh, space buggy is one of my favorites. It's the third panel in the book. Uh, it's a really nice Mike Grell action pose kind of thing. There's some other other fun bits in here. It's a pretty standard issue, though. Little bits of, of combat going on. And, of course, we get the new Karate Kid uniform, uh, which people uh, associate with that character. So that, uh, that's a couple of the big reveals in there. But, yeah, like I said, my fav one of my favorite panels has got to be the, the third panel in the book. Just really, really nice. All right, moving along to the second story written by Carrie Bates with art by Mike Grell. Uh, it's called Hero for a Day. 
Imagine getting a chance to spend 24 hours with the most famous super teens of the 30th century, the Legionnaires. But for the avid young fan who wins the honor, his dream come true fast becomes a nightmare when the very lives of his idols depend on whether or not he can become a hero for the day. So Flint Broge, welcome to the Legion. And I know this this character, this geeky little character with glasses, is actually based, according to legend, on a Legion fan uh, who started a fanzine, was a really big kind of pro-Legion guy back in the day. So this is a little bit of an homage to an actual fan of the book, which is kind of nice. And we see Sun Boy, Shrinking Violet, Star Boy, Cosmic Boy, and Wildfire welcoming Flint Broge to the Legion headquarters, guest for a day. They fly him off, they give him his own flight ring, and they're all hanging out, and this is ultimate fanboy geekery going on. Saturn Girl gives him a flight ring, and he's just, oh, he's so excited, he's so excited. And then they uh, they go to Parcel Receiving Dock. This is like the, the post office, or the mailbox, uh, where Sunboy informs them that the Federal Postal Satellite orbiting the Earth receives a package addressed to the Legion. The package's molecules are scrambled and beamed to this machine, which reassembles the item in its original form, or like a transporter on Star Trek. Of course, there's a lot of security issues, and they kind of brag about that. But then Cosmic Boy, as this thing is beaming aboard, he and Flint look pretty excited, and he says, then I think they missed one, old chum. Take a look. Oh my gosh, there's a cage with an animal inside of it. And Cosmic Boy says, sizzling stars sound the general alarm. It's a Tulvanian witch wolf, the deadliest beast in the solar system. So they grab Flint and they fly out of there fast and they seal the room so that this Tulvanian witch wolf cannot get away. And they're all concerned that Flint is there and it's like, oh, this is bad news. We've got to do something about it, though. The question is soon a subject of speculation. Apparently one of our enemies is doing this. What do we do? We have to do something. Sunboy surmises uh, we have to do something. Otherwise, this could get out and terrorize all of Metropolis. Our one chance is to reset the controls of the teleportation dock and beam this brute to the deserted asteroid where it can do no harm. So they got to get back in the room, and they have to beam this sort of thing out. But he says the wolf will be smart enough to know what we're up to. So we have to. We're going to have to have. We're going to have a real fight ahead of us. We'll each take a crack at the monster, one legionnaire at a time, until one of us succeeds. So, uh, so yeah, this wolf creature has has these dangerous uh, abilities. And Cosmic Boy has told Flint, he says, uh, about the, uh, the witch wolf, I think that you should know, its hide gives off an invisible poisonous radiation, and that the, uh, the three of us may have already been fatally stricken because they were in the room with it. So this is a huge, huge danger. So one at a time, they decide to go into the room. Cosmic Boy tries to go in magnetically, but suddenly it, it starts bouncing his magnetism back at him. He goes flying around the room until he's unconscious. Wildfire, Sun Boy, and Shrinking Violet are outside the room watching. They see that Cosmic Boy was unsuccessful, and Flint is fidgeting with his flight ring. He's twisting it around. He's playing with it and so forth. And we see that it falls off of his finger. And then Wildfire goes into the room. He tries to blast it, and the blast comes back and takes him out. So it's deflecting all of their powers back on them. And then we see, of course, uh, Flint is standing out there, and he's thinking to himself, this is fantastic. I'm looking directly at the cage. I can't explain it. I can't explain what I see. It's as if I'm blind. He, and he's really kind of frustrated and confused. Shrinking Violet shrinks down and goes under the door, and then she starts to come back up, but she blacks out. Saturn Girl arrives, and it alerts to Monel and the others who are on, uh, on call. They'll be here in minutes. 
She and Sunboy are the last two left with Flint standing there. But then Flint bursts past them. He runs into the room and Sunboy is shocked. Saturn Girl tries to stop him. And then Flint goes into the room, opens the cage, and climbs in with the witch wolf. But instead of it killing him, it disappears once he is inside the cage. Flint's plan worked. The spell has been broken. And Saturn Girl then informs Sunboy that telepathically she understood what he was doing. But she lets him explain. And after all of the other Legionnaires find themselves recovered, Flint tells them the story that it was an empty cage. The wolf was never really there. Uh, They're all victims of a mass hypnotic spell. But he can't figure out what happened, how that happened. And Saturn Girl says, hey, I have the answer. I found your flight ring outside in the corridor. And she says, I have a hunch that the hypnotic illusion was being transmitted through the filaments of our rings. When Flint unknowingly dropped his ring to the floor, he was no longer under spell. And all is good in Legion Land. And we see in the last panel that Flint gets a kiss on each cheek from Saturn Girl and Shrinking Violet. The end. And that is the end of the issue. Uh, Kind of a goofy story, kind of a strange, silly story. Uh, The Legion uh, dealing with uh, this prank. We never find out who did it or why or what what was going on there. There's some great action shots in this that Grell does of each of the Legionnaires taking on the Witch Wolf in there. Uh, I love, though, i got to say, one of my favorite panels here is the first and second panel in the entire book where we see the back of Flint's head and the Legionnaire standing around smiling at him. And then we see their view of Flint and this great full character pose Mike Grell has done such a tremendous job of drawing, you know, what looks like maybe a 12-year-old nerd in the, the 29th century, 30th century. It's pretty cool. I, I like it. Flint is, is appropriately geeky with his big glasses and slightly bulging belly. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. This uh, issue features some great Legion characters who... Wildfire, of course, a big, big fan favorite. It's always good to see. And uh, Sunboy, it's great. Uh, Grell always did a great job on both of them. And this is Cosmic Boy, and his still in his pink uniform before he gets the wild bustier look from Grell. But there we go. That's that's it. That's a good one. Issue two hundred nine. Oh boy, nineteen seventy five. Legion of Superheroes. But Mike Grell, Jim Shooter, Carrie Bates, the all all part of the reason that the Legion became so popular during this period of time. That's it. This is Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Podcast, which my podcast show is on a temporary hiatus, but we'll be back very, very soon. So uh, stay stay tuned and stay posted for that. Thank you again to Darren and Ruth for this great opportunity to be a part of their wonderful podcast show. And this is Jeff Messer signing off saying, long live the Legion. Next up is listener feedback when we share emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate each comment. They add lots to the show. Thanks to everyone who wrote in or got in touch through social media. It was really nice to get an email from Mike Grell saying that his screenplay for Shaman's Tears has made it to the quarterfinals in the Stage 32 Sci-Fi and Fantasy Screenwriting Contest. We hope he can connect with somebody to finance the film because we would love to see it. We have some great feedback and comments to share. Then we'll close out this section with the Warlord Movie Dreamcast Contest. Let's start with Brian Mulvey, who wrote, Thank you both for your excellent interview with the great Mike Grell. It was such a joy to hear Mike's stories and anecdotes about Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters. Andrew, the Supergirl comic box commentary, said, Great interview. Amazed he was drawing the whole time. Incredible. That was impressive, Ange. And in addition to that, when there would be loudspeaker announcements or other interruptions, he would pause and pick right back up where he stopped. 
Comics in the Golden Age wrote, Another fantastic episode from one of my favorite podcasts from two of my favorite hosts about one of my favorite writers and artists. Thanks, Mike. And then, if you can believe it, we saw that Jerry Ordway liked that particular tweet about our Mike Grell interview. Fantastic. Chris of Bat Books for Beginners told us, Excellent interview. Excellent questions. I had to keep the 30-second rewind going a lot because I kept wanting to hear answers again. Well done. Thanks, Chris. Jerry, a.k.a. Professor Frenzy, also of Bat Books for Beginners, wrote, Just listen to this terrific episode. So much information, and it is clear that Mike Grell has a special connection with Green Arrow. And Jerry had the good fortune to see Mike Grell at BurrowCon in New York on the actual 30th anniversary of the Longbow Hunters. And, of course, he had his copy of the book in hand, giving Mike Grell the opportunity to write a special note for Jerry that said, This is the first copy signed on the 30th anniversary. That's a terrific memory, Jerry. And to top it off, Jerry got to wear Mike Grell's hat. Not many people get a chance to do that. And Jerry shared a photo to prove it. Jerry also let us know he had a great conversation with Mike about the comic Batman Mask. And we're planning something special with Chris and Jerry from Bat Books for Beginners so he can share that with all of us. Michael Yang was excited to see the photo of Jerry's signed book. Michael actually has a first edition print of the graphic novel that he hopes to get autographed sometime. That would be fantastic. Best of luck, Michael. Mark Sweeney of the I'm the Gun blog and podcast posted, Darren and Ruth do it again, completing the third of three excellent recent creator interviews, this time Mike Grell. Thanks, Mark. And we send a special thanks to Ryan Daly of the Powers of Fishnets, John Holloway of the Worst Comic Podcast Ever, Reggie of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast, and Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl for the kind comments and promotions they shared on social media about the Mike Grell interview. Alan Wright of BoldOutlaw.com said, Great interview with comics legend Mike Grell. Alan said he enjoyed the discussion about Robin Hood as well as Green Arrow and wrote, I wonder if Julie Schwartz nixed the proto-shadow idea for covering the same ground as Batman's Night of the Reaper story. But then enough time had surely passed. I can definitely see the Robin and Marion influence, and not just with Ollie dealing with his age. The idea that the pirates, especially in the 1970s origin, were just exaggerations reminds me of an exchange from Robin and Marion, and he shared an excerpt of dialogue that makes me want to rewatch that film. And Simon Barry Brisbois enjoyed our interview with Mike Grell, saying, We had very nice questions on Grell's work and his comic books, and he mentioned that one of his favorite Robin Hoods is Christy Mark's Conquests of the Longbow video games and the Disney film. Now that grabbed my attention because I'm a huge fan of Christy Mark's. I loved her games and the original comic series that she wrote called Sisterhood of Still. Alan Wright joined in the conversation about Christy Marks, saying, I also loved her Conquest of Camelot game. I love the start of those games and the richness of the material. I do agree, Alan. And later, Eagle-Eyed Simon wrote us again after spotting an issue of the Warlord comic in a grocery store scene in the movie Friday the 13th Part 3. The issue even mentions Arion on the cover, which was edited by our friend Lori Sutton. We tagged Lori, and she wrote back saying, Those movies scare me, so I never watched them. So she thanked Simon for taking the hit for her and spotting Warlord and Arion. And she added that Arion and Warlord are her eternal favorites. Simon also let us know that he's gotten off to a strong start on his search for Warlord comics and has found several from the original series so far. And he shared a photo of a great little Warlord figure that fit right in the palm of his hand. Thanks for sharing all of that, Simon, and good luck finding those remaining issues. And speaking of Warlord figures, we have to mention our friend Derek William Crabb. 
When he learned that we didn't have the Warlord figure from the 1980s, he sent us one as an amazing gift, complete with cape and sword. Fantastic. Thank you, Derek. And we encourage everyone to check out his Fan Holes podcast and his excellent YouTube channel, The History of Comics on Film. Mike Skelly has been making good progress completing his Warlord comic collection as well. He has posted the few he is missing on our Facebook page, and he has extra copies of some issues to trade. Karen Williams of Between the Pages let us know when the new Star Slayer trade was out from Dark Horse, and later also let us know when it was released on Comixology. It's a nice collection of the full eight-issue director's cut and features introductions by John Ostrander and Tim Truman. It also includes the images from the Star Slayer portfolio that is now quite a collector's item. And we want to thank Victor Lonza for making Mike Grell fans aware of a 50-issue run of John Sable that was up on eBay. Victor is great at finding good deals and sharing them with fans. Crazed Wingnut wrote, Beautiful. No denying Grell is a fantastic Green Arrow artist, in reference to one of Mike's new alternate covers. He said, I really like it, especially the arrow design on her outfit. And we agree. Chris Sheehan of the blog Chris's on Infinite Earths covered Green Lantern Volume 2, number 95, from 1977 in an excellent blog post featuring Mike Grell on pencils. We'll include a link in the show notes so you can see Chris's take on this clean-shaven Ollie and the beautiful black canary in this issue. And Chris gave us a kind shout-out, saying that Warlord Worlds is a comprehensive resource for all things Grell. Thanks, Chris. Chris also shared a photo of himself on Twitter meeting Dan Jurgens at a con. It's a fantastic photo, and Dan Jurgens is such a nice guy. Thanks for sharing it, Chris. We also connected with the Splash Network's Longbox Comic Review podcast online and learned they covered the Longbow Hunters in their very first episode. The conversation is great, and we'll include a link in the show notes so you can check it out, too. And they've recommended our latest interview episode to their listeners on social media. Thanks so much. In advance of Sydney Supernova, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast was excited to see Mike Grell's Green Arrow turning up on ads for the convention on buses in Australia. Isn't that fantastic? And Paul posted it would soon be time to meet the man, the myth, and the legend. Being a big fan of the Doom Patrol, Paul got Mike to do an awesome Robot Man sketch. And Paul proudly shared a photo of himself with Mike holding that sketch. We'll share that photo on our Facebook and Twitter pages and encourage everyone to listen to the excellent Waiting for Doom podcast. And we also learned that Mike caught up with Colin Donnell, who played Tommy Merlin on Arrow at Supernova in Sydney. And Mike mentioned that he looks just like John Sable. We agree, so check out the photo at MikeGrell.com. This is Mike's first trip back to Australia in 25 years, and he's taking time to do some traveling and sightseeing while he's there. We've seen photos of him with koalas, which made us think that it would be great if he does some sketches of the wildlife while he's there. We'll have to keep an eye on his website to see if he shares any. SLC Green Arrow shared a photo of a wonderful work in progress, which is a terrific Longbow Hunter's Green Arrow costume. It's not finished yet, but it looks great so far, and we look forward to when he shares the finished version. And we were happy to see that he was also featured in the June 26th post at ShareMyCosplay.com. He talks about various costumes he's done in the past and how much he enjoys when kids recognize him as Green Arrow. He also includes his upcoming con schedule. Guy Waite commented on a great John Sable cover, saying, It's sad we never got the rest of Maggie the Cat from Image back in the day. I agree completely, and I would love for Mike to be able to continue that series. And Jamie Ray pointed out a Mike Grell Easter egg in the comic Ex Machina from Brian Vaughn and Tony Harris, saying, It's a pretty awesome nod to Mike. I've got to go look that up. Thanks, Jamie. And before we wrap up our feedback, we want to mention a new Facebook group dedicated to the Legion of Superheroes, run by Johnny Williams. It's filled with terrific images and informative posts. If you want to join the group, you can message him on Facebook for more information. 
And now it's time to share the Warlord movie Dreamcast suggestions we've received and have a drawing for some prizes. First up is Brian Mulvey, who said, Your contest sounds like fun, so I have to enter. So here goes. Travis Morgan, the legend Errol Flynn. Tara, Christina Hendricks of Mad Men. Shakira, Scarlett Johansson. Demos, played by Vincent Price. That's a very nice and creepy choice, Brian. Machiste, Idris Elba from Luther. And Joshua, played by a young Jackie Cooper. Joe Crawford of the blog for the non-discerning reader not only shared casting ideas, but he has the beginnings of a plot that we think Mike Grell would definitely appreciate. Joe wrote, So I was thinking about your suggestion. I thought a cool thing would be if maybe Oliver had a dream after a bad injury on Arrow, and he wakes up in Skrtaris as Oliver Queen the Warlord. His compatriots are the rest of the cast of the show. They have a great adventure and face off against Demos. The Warlord is Stephen Amell. Machiste is David Ramsey. Tara is Emily Rickards. Shakira is Katie Lotz, and Demos is John Barrowman. I love that idea, Joe, and it would make a very fun episode of Arrow. Ange of the Supergirl comic box commentary shared his thoughts. Warlord, Alexander Skarsgård. He proved himself to me in Tarzan, or Nathan Fillion if you want Travis to be a bit older. Tara, Rihanna. Mariah, Natalie Dormer from The Game of Thrones. Shakira, Alexandra Daddario of the Percy Jackson films. I like those movies too, and I can really see that. Machiste, Henry Simmons from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Demos by actor and musician Michael Shannon. John Baker was quick to share his dream cast for Warlord. Travis Morgan, Chris Hemsworth. He definitely looks like he can walk right into that role, John. Machiste, Shamar Moore from Criminal Minds. Shakira, Charlize Theron. I can definitely see that. Tara, Lena Headey from Game of Thrones. Demos, Smaug himself, Benedict Cumberbatch. And Jennifer, Summer Glau. Leslie Trigg shared his Dreamcast. Travis Morgan, Viggo Mortensen. Mortensen's work on both A History of Violence and The Lord of the Rings shows that he has what it takes to play the lead. Great physical presence, training with weapons and horses. I agree completely, Leslie. We love Viggo Mortensen in everything, and especially The Lord of the Rings. Tara, Alexa Davalos from Man in the High Castle. She is a strong female lead that can be both a damsel and attacker. Machiste, Michael James Shaw, who was terrific in the Constantine TV series. He has the presence to fill a room and demand our attention. Shakira, Sarah Bolger from Into the Badlands. She is a stunning beauty with a mischief side. Also, look at her work as Violet on Agent Carter. And I want to thank Leslie for recommending Into the Badlands to us. We've been watching it ever since. Simon Barry Brisbois shared a very extensive cast list, and we like lots of his selections that come from some favorites like The Hobbit, Twin Peaks, and The Musketeers. For Travis Morgan, Graham McTavish from The Hobbit. Demos, Nicholas Bolton from video games Dragon Age and Mass Effect. Ace Morgan, Scott Kyle from Outlander. Tara, Katrina Balfe, also from Outlander. Machiste, Amon Walker from Oz. Jennifer Morgan, Viva Bianca from Spartacus. Joshua Morgan, Adam Howden, who does video games including Dragon Age. Rachel Morgan, Cheryl and Finn from Twin Peaks. Mariah Romanova, Olga Kurilenko, model and actress. Tania, Indira Varma from Game of Thrones. Christovar, Harry Goes from Twin Peaks. Ashir, Ryan Gage from The Hobbit. Scarhart, musician and actor Rudy Youngblood. Mongo Ironhand, Bobby Knute from Immerdale. Graymore, Harold Charles from The Musketeers. Arion, Alexandra Dowling from The Musketeers and Game of Thrones. Ben Stryker, Mark Warren from The Musketeers and Good Wife. Shakira, Myrie Calvi from Horizon. And Captain Hawk, Gideon Emery from Spartacus. 
Wow, we've heard so many great recommendations, and we'll share our thoughts too, though I don't think we can top any of these. Okay, I'll go first, and I'll say for Travis Morgan, Alexander Skarsgård from Tarzan. Hadn't I noticed Ange chose him as well? For Tara, I'm going to choose Katie McGrath, who was terrific in Merlin and now in Supergirl. For Shakira, Kate Beckinsale from the Underworld movies. I can really see her playing someone who is half-cat. For Demos, Jude Law. And I have a favorite TV couple that I want to cast for Mariah and Machiste, which are, from Leverage, Beth Riesgraf as Mariah and Aldous Hodge as Machiste. They were so excellent together in that series, and I just want to see them together in something else like this. It would be perfect. And now it's my turn. Travis Morgan, Christian Kane of The Librarians, and Leverage. I can tell we were both thinking of that series. Very good choice. Tara, Liv Tyler from The Lord of the Rings. Machiste, like Joe Crawford, I thought David Ramsey from Arrow. Mariah, Evangeline Lilly from Lost and The Hobbit. And Shakira, Catherine Zeta-Jones, who everyone knows from Zorro, Entrapment, and so many great movies, but I can remember seeing her first in the British series The Darling Buds of May. Okay, and now it's time to put the names in a hat and choose our winners. We have two books signed by Mike Grell to give away, so here we go. First up is Leslie. And now for the final prize. Okay, let's see here. We have Simon. Big congratulations to you both. And we'll reach out to both of you for your addresses. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since last episode. These are people who liked or shared our Facebook or Tumblr pages or retweeted our tweets. If we miss a name, just let us know and we'll include it next time. And please do forgive us if we mispronounce your name. If that happens, just let us know and we'd be happy to correct that next time as well. 20th Century Geek Podcast with Scott Weatherly, Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Ashford of the Right On Network, featuring Feathers and Foes and Straight Outta Gallifrey, BC Fan 101, Brian Hackney, Brian Mulvey, Chris Carnes of the Bat Books for Beginners and Batman 66 on Batgirl to Oracle podcast, Chris Sheehan of the Cosmic Treadmill podcast and the blog Chris's on Infinite Earths, Clinton Robson of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris, Crazed Wingnut, Colin Stapleton from the Worst Comics podcast ever, Diablo Frank of the Idlehead of Diablo Martian Manhunter blog and Diana Prince's Wonder Woman. Doug Juizia of the Doom Patrol blog, My Greatest Adventure 80, and writer for Comicosity. Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of the Pulp to Pixel podcast. Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions. Eric Mannix of Out of the Fridge and Pages for All Ages. Jerry Green of Bat Books for Beginners. Grant Richter of the Unearthly Visions blog. Guy Waite, Holly M. of Holly Wrote It. Jamie Ray, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain podcast. Jeffrey Willis of the Hollow World blog and Wave Your Geek Flag. Joe Crawford from the blog for the Non-Discerning Reader. John Holloway of the Worst Comics Podcast Ever. Johnny Williams of the Facebook group Long Live the Legion. Justice's First Dawn with Mike Peacock. Karen Williams of Between the Pages. Laurel Phillips, a.k.a. Mountainflower. Leslie Trigg. Lombok's Comic Review. Lombok's Crusade Podcast with Pat and Jared. Mark Adams of the Mark's Mess Podcast. Mark Sweeney from the I'm the Gun blog and podcast and comics couplets. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age. Michael Yang. Pat Sampson of the Lombok's Crusade. 
Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Paul Spataro of Back to the Bends and Is It Jaws, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Reggie of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast, The Rolled Spine Podcast, Russell Burbage of the Legion of Superbloggers, Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets and Batman Nightcast, Scott Cress of Catskill Comics, Simon Barre Brisbois, SLC Green Arrow, Tim Wallace of Court Industries Blue Beetle Blog and the podcast Beetle Mania, Tony Greenall, the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, Victor Lanza, and Wendy Freeman of the podcast Double Page Spread. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. If you want to contact us directly, please send an email to warlordworlds at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr using the name Warlord Worlds. And you can also visit warlordworlds.com for links to our social media pages. You can listen to our show through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and all of our episodes are available at warlordworlds.podbean.com. You can also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel, you'll find all the episodes of all of our podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, as well as Trekker Talk about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Every review helps the podcast be more likely to show up in search results. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended.